Hi, I'm John, Father John Deere, and welcome to this Peace Podcast. Today I'd like to take a close look at the climactic story in the Gospel of John, the raising of Lazarus, as an image of the nonviolent Jesus confronting death. And not just death, but the whole culture of death. And also as an image of what a life of hope and peacemaking and revolutionary nonviolence might look like. I think this is an original way to understand the story. And I hope it will help us with the task before us to abolish poverty, racism, war, the death penalty, nuclear weapons, and environmental destruction. So this is going to be part meditation, part Bible study, and part like classroom teaching. And just to let you know, I've spent many, many years working on this and published these reflections in my book, Lazarus Come Forth. And I hope if you like this, I hope you'll go and get the book from Amazon or Orbis. So this is going to be a little long and serious. So I invite you to sit back with a cup of coffee and listen attentively if you can. A few points before I begin. As I always say, Gandhi said Jesus was the most active person of nonviolence in history. Jesus teaches a spectacular vision of peace and nonviolence. Things like love your neighbor, love one another, show compassion to everyone, seek justice for the poor, forgive everyone, do unto others as we would have them do unto you, turn the other cheek, take up the cross and the struggle for justice and peace, and lay down your life in love for humanity. At the heart of the, the great commandment, love your enemies, which means has nothing to do with war or injustice, but be people of universal, active, unconditional, all-encompassing, nonviolent love. So, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the Synoptic Gospels, tell one basic story. Now, this part is key to understand what I'm about to present. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus is like Gandhi on the salt march. He's organizing the poor in Galilee, and then they turn and walk on their campaign of active nonviolence to Jerusalem, into the temple, the center of imperial and religious oppression of the poor, to the center of systemic injustice, where Jesus does an act of very serious nonviolent civil disobedience by turning over the tables of the money changers and says, in effect, no more injustice. This is a house of prayer. He doesn't hurt anyone, but he engages in nonviolent direct action. He's not passive. He's a nonviolent revolutionary. And in the Synoptic Gospels, it's very clear for this action, he's arrested and executed as a revolutionary. And remember, as I said before, his last words to the community, to the church, just as the soldiers drag him away, are the basis of everything. Put down the sword. And Gandhi says he goes to his execution in perfect nonviolence after this very public nonviolent direct action. And he's forgiving everyone, loving everyone, trusting in God. And the story is God raised him from the dead. He comes back and says, peace be with you. Now you walk the road of nonviolence. Now, listen to this. Scholars all agree that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written just before or just after the year 70. What happened in the year 70? Everybody's got to know this. That's when we know, historically, the Roman Empire came in and totally destroyed Jerusalem. Okay? That's when Jesus talks about coming to the end of the world. It's the destruction of Jerusalem. So Jesus is portrayed as the epitome of nonviolent resistance, like Gandhi marching to Jerusalem, where he engages in nonviolent direct action and is killed for it. 
That's the story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, he, he, and Mark is probably before the destruction, and the writer is saying, hey, let's listen to Jesus. And Matthew and Luke are written probably after the destruction, saying, you should have listened to Jesus. But there's no mention of Lazarus, much less the raising of Lazarus in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So here's the big news. The Gospel of John, on the other hand, tells a completely different story. And it's written at least in the 90s, but maybe as late as 120, which is 50 years after the Gospel of Mark. So it tells a different story, and their community of peace, love, and nonviolence is trying to jazz up the story to get us to wake up even more. It starts with Jesus' civil disobedience in the temple. You know, there's the wedding at Cana, and then Jesus goes in and turns over the tables, right? Page three. It's fantastic. It has the famous prologue, the signs and the glory, and the encounters with Nicodemus and the woman at the well and the blind man and the woman caught in adultery, and it all leads up to a completely different climax. Chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus, which is followed by the washing of the feet, the Last Supper discourse, and his death and resurrection. Now, I remember studying all this, of course, in theology school 30 years ago before you all were bored. And uh, it's so amazing because the scholars have said for centuries, no one can figure out the Gospel of John. Well, I'm happy to announce today to you that I figured it out. I know that trying to make you laugh, but actually, this is amazing. I think the only way to understand Jesus and the Gospels and the church and the teachings and certainly the Gospel of John is through the lens of nonviolence. But if you have a perspective of nonviolence, the Gospel of John makes perfect sense. Throughout the Gospel of John, the same two words are repeated over and over and over and over again, and they're hardly ever used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What are those words? Life and death. This is so interesting. I have come that you may have life and life to the full. Anyone who believes in me and does what I say will live and has begun eternal life here and now, and so will not die and will have nothing to do with death. Well, from the perspective of nonviolence, that makes sense to me. But if you don't have it, you don't know what the heck he's talking about. And he says, live life to the full through agape. That word is used over and over in John, act of nonviolent love. And what do they do? Over and over throughout the Gospel of John, they're trying to kill him. Do you know that there are 27 death threats and assassination attempts against Jesus in the Gospel of John? You didn't know that. Nobody talks about it. Everybody goes in all the religious books, oh, John is the pious gospel. Baloney. That's because we're missing the whole point. Other, the point for me in John is like, you know, I've quoted it before on these podcasts, the line from the great poem by my favorite Edna St. Vincent Millay. I shall die, but that is all I shall do for death. That's the gospel message of John. That's a good message. Have nothing to do with death, which means the culture of death, and the metaphors and means of death, which means war, racism, violence, injustice, and so on. Instead, live life to the full. Now, here's the big, my big pitch before we read the text. 
So buckle your seatbelts. And this is why this story works, having everything that I've just told you, and this is only from studying the Greek and with my background in nonviolence. Lazarus represents the entire human race. Well, if that's true, then the whole story makes perfect sense. Then if you're a member of the Gospel of John, the community that wrote this, 50 years after the destruction of Jerusalem, almost 100 years after the death of Jesus, you've, you've summed up Jesus in an even greater way. It's just brilliant writing. They make the gospel end with the raising of the entire human race. Lazarus is humanity. Jesus is the God of life, confronting the culture of death and war, where humanity is stuck and entombed, and he calls humanity out of the tombs of death to live in the new life of resurrection. Isn't that fantastic? This changes everything, friends. This gospel is dynamite and nonviolent revolution. Now you're going, well, John, at least give me a clue. How can you come up with that? Because I haven't yet written this book. Chapter 9 of the Gospel of John, look it up, the big long story of the blind man. He's blind in the temple area, and Jesus and the parents come, and the teachers, and Jesus heals him. In the Greek, the first few words, the word for man can be singular or plural in the Greek. So the first sentence of chapter 9 of the Gospel of John reads in the Greek, and I am not making this up. Go and look it up. It says, Jesus walked by and saw humanity born blind from birth. It's fantastic stuff. That's right there. But you could change the word humanity to be a man born blind from birth. And that's where this stuff is so, the poetry in it is so fantastic. And why you need a teacher to help unpack these things. So in John chapter 11, he's just doing the same thing. Jesus says, now all humanity is dead. So that's my preliminary. Now I'm going to sit back here and open my Bible and read chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. So friends, this is long. I invite you to sit back, get in a peaceful, prayerful space. If you have your Bible and you want to read along, but maybe it's better not to, just listen carefully. I'm just going to read all of chapter 11, and then afterwards I'm going to walk through the whole story with you and try to unpack it. Okay, here goes. Chapter 11, the Gospel of John, verse 1. Now a man was ill, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who had anointed the Lord with perfumed oil and dried his feet with her hair. It was her brother, Lazarus, who was ill. So the sister sent word to Jesus, saying, Master, the one you love is ill. When Jesus heard this, he said, this illness is not to end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and, Jesus, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he remained for two days in the place where he was. Then, after that, he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Judeans were just trying to stone you to death, and you want to go back there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? 
If one walks during the day, she does not stumble because she sees the light of the world. But if one walks at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. He said this, and then he just told them, Our friend Lazarus is asleep, but I'm going to awaken him. So the disciples said to him, Well, Master, if he's asleep, he'll be saved. But of course, Jesus was talking about his death while they thought he meant ordinary sleep. So then he said to them clearly, Lazarus has died, and I am glad for you that I was not there, that you may believe. Let us go to him. So Thomas, called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go to die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, only two miles away, and many of the Judeans had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary sat back at home. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise. And Martha said, no, I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have come to believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. And when she said this, she got up and went and called her sister Mary secretly saying, the teacher is here and asking for you. As soon as she heard this, Mary rose quickly and went to him. For Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still where Mary, I'm sorry, still where Martha had met him. So when the Judeans who were with her in the house comforting her saw Mary get up quickly and go out, they followed her, presuming that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus saw her weeping and the Judeans who had come with her weeping and he became perturbed, deeply troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Judeans said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not the one who opened the eyes of the blind man have done something so that this man would not have died? Jesus approached the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay across it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the dead man's sister, said, Lord, by now there'll be a stench. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd here, I have said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The dead man came out, tied hand and foot with burial bands, and his face was wrapped in a cloth. So Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go.
So in chapter 10, just before this, what had happened, Jesus is talking and the Judeans of Bethany pick up stones to kill Jesus because of the things he's saying about God. I could go on and on about that. But he walks right through them and goes into the desert alone. Then they come tracking him down and it says, you know, a man was ill. Humanity is ill and then dead. Oh, they come back and say, your friend Lazarus is dying. He's ill. No, now he's dead. Um, and he says, okay. He waits a couple of days. but He's dead. Let's go now to see Lazarus which means walking right back to where they were in chapter 10, to the place where the Judeans were just trying to stone Jesus to death. In other words, he's walking back into the death squads. The story of Lazarus takes place where Jesus is almost assassinated, and now he's going back there totally peacefully and calmly. Now, this is just so amazing. The male disciples, they hear this, and they're totally terrified. So they start arguing with him and say, try to stop him. Don't you realize, Jesus, those people were trying to kill you? We can't go back there. What are you, crazy? And this is what's so amazing to me throughout the whole story. I mean, the writer here is fantastic. There are the most incredible characters, which are really caricatures, beginning with these male disciples, the men. And I mean the men. They try to stop Jesus from going back to help Lazarus. What does Jesus say? Hey, our friend. This is huge, loaded language in the Gospel of John. For Jesus, discipleship is all about friendship. You're not my servants, you're my friends. Hey, our friend is in need. We, what? That means Lazarus is their friend, too, even though we're told how much Jesus, these are Jesus' best friends, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. It's, it's fantastic. Hey, didn't we just agree in the last chapter there's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends? What? Aren't you willing to do this for your friends? You don't want to lay down your life for your friends? Let's go. We're going. This is what nonviolence is all about. All about. I, I just love this because... All this peacemaking stuff is about friendship and community and nonviolent love. Laying down one's life for one's friends is normal and natural. That's what the spiritual life is all about. And what do they say? Here we have one of the greatest, most outrageous lines in all of the gospel. Thomas, of all people, you're going to hear about him later, says to the other men, let us go and die with him. I'm trying to be dramatic. <laughs> because if you just heard me read the story, if you read the rest of the story, these guys are never mentioned again. They're nowhere to be seen. They never appear in the rest of the story. In other words, the male disciples do not go back to Bethany with Jesus. Not until chapter 12 do we hear about the male disciples far away from controversy. This to me is classic macho male churchman talking the talk, 
but not walking the walk. And we've seen this up to right this very minute. Let us go and die with them. And we could all ask ourselves, what part of us is like the male disciples who make great promises to Jesus, but do not walk the walk while Jesus goes off to confront the culture of death? And then, friends, we are left with the most incredible image of Jesus. Chapter 11, the climax of the gospel. You heard me read it to you. Jesus approached the tomb. In other words, Jesus walks alone back to Bethany, right back to the crowd who just tried to kill him. And they were doing that for God, by the way. And there he's going to stand with his friend, whom I'm, by the way, pointing out to you is humanity. Jesus, vulnerable, unarmed, perfectly nonviolent, the one who values friendship more than anyone else, walks alone. So we're back in Bethany, and now we get the next group of characters. These are the professional mourners, the Judeans of Bethany. I hope you notice I'm not using the word Jews, because that's the wrong translation from the Greek. It's, at, it's actually who do I, do I? It's like the Judeans. It's like saying those New Yorkers or those San Francisco people. It's a regional, that's why that translation has got us so much in trouble. The Judeans of Bethany, what are they doing as Jesus approaching? They're sobbing and weeping because Lazarus dead. These are very devout, holy people, the same religious people who tried to stone Jesus to death. This is us today, fulfilling their religious obligation to mourn Lazarus, showing great public sorrow for their death, yet their hearts are filled with murder and violence and war. Okay, how are we like them? We're a lot like them. Then finally we get the two greatest disciples in all the four Gospels. How about that? Martha and Mary, the beloved heroic women who come closest towards accepting Christ, who may be his best friends, And what's happening? They're now well within the ritual 30 days of mourning, which is this requirement of Judaism. And they're beside themselves with grief. And we're told twice, remember, it's important, twice that Lazarus has been dead for four days. Why? Who cares? Because according to Jewish belief, the soul of the dead person leaves the body after three days. So the soul's still there in day one and day two, but after three, in other words, you could raise a person from the dead after two days, but after three days, don't bother. And we're told that twice. This is very clear. Everybody who reads this in the first century would go, oh my God, there's nothing there, Jesus. Lazarus is dead. Four days. He's gone. Jesus, you're too late. There's nothing that can be done. And so we hear this desperate cry, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, this, dear friends, is the voice of utter hopelessness, a voice which we all know well, because this is Jesus' best friend, totally hopeless in front of Jesus, because deep down we too feel the same disappointment in Christ before the power of death. Lord, if you had been here, we all say, just like Martha and Mary, then our relatives and friends would not have died. Our sisters and brothers around the world would not have died, would not be dying. Then perhaps death would not hold power over us. We wouldn't wage war and be so racist and sexist and corrupt and greedy and hang on the brink of nuclear destruction and climate change. And this vulnerable, 
unarmed, nonviolent, peaceful, holy Jesus looks us in the eye and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever is fully alive here and now, and therefore has nothing to do with death and the traces of death and violence, and is fully in the present moment now in the resurrection peace, and believes in me as I walk the way of life and nonviolence to confront the culture of death, will never die. Do you believe this? He asks. Friends, this is perhaps the greatest question ever asked. I invite you to sit with it. Don't jump to an answer. As the great poet Rilke says, sit with the questions and live your way into the answer. Now, when Jesus sees Mary and the others weeping, he's deeply troubled and deeply, really upset. And so he asks, where have you laid him? And suddenly the Judeans, the professional mourners, that's us, uh, are you with me? The people of the culture of death, they're very eager to show Jesus the tomb. And they say three devastating words. Come and see. Dear friends, those words should sound very familiar to you as Christians. These are the same precious words at the beginning of the Gospel of John, which Jesus used as he invites the disciples to follow him. Lord, where do you live? Come and see. So beautiful and gentle, our Jesus. Come and see the new life of peace and love and nonviolence. This is how Jesus recruits us into discipleship and nonviolence. And now the professional mourners, the people of the culture of death who just tried to kill Jesus are trying to recruit Jesus into discipleship in the culture of death. It's incredible. You see what the writer has done here. Come and see. And so we have the most famous three words of the entire Bible, the shortest sentence in the entire Bible, and no one knows what it means. And Jesus wept. Oh, they shake their heads in disbelief. Oh, if only he had done something. Isn't that a shame? It's like Seinfeld. They sound, this sounds so familiar because we do the same thing, you know. If only he had done something. Not at all, friends. What you're seeing here is these professional mourners is that nobody believes in Jesus and everybody believes in death. And how does this make Jesus feel? If you're a friend of Jesus, that's a loaded word, a disciple of Jesus, that's all you care about because you're his disciple. Jesus has given his life for everybody. He comes with the gift of life. I'm bringing you the possibility of new life. I am the God of life. I want you to have the fullness of life. And how is he received? He's completely and totally rejected by them and by us, the people of the culture of death and war. Hey, Jesus, come and see our ways of death. And so we're told he breaks down and weeps. And contrary to what has been taught for 2,000 years, Jesus does not weep because Lazarus has died. Please start telling everybody this. He's already told us he's glad. He rejoices at the news of Lazarus' death. And, and Lazarus is his best friend. Oh, and, you know, your best friend would do that for you. But Jesus thinking, oh, maybe now they're going to believe me. Instead, he finds everyone given over to the control of death, and he breaks down sobbing 
because he's the full loving human being. Jesus weeps because everyone in the story, the male disciples, the religious people, the professional mourners, even his beloved friends, the greatest disciples, Martha and Mary, every one of them and all of us believe not in the God of life, but in the culture of death. Jesus weeps not because his friend has died, but because every drop of faith and hope in us has died. Like all the characters in the story, at one point or another, every one of us says this to Jesus, I'm sorry, Lord, you're a nice guy, but there's nothing that can be done. You gave it a good try, but there is no hope. Death does get the last word. And so Jesus breaks down and weeps. Now, this is such a dramatic moment. And just here, at this moment of total rock-bottom despair, where Jesus is sobbing, where you and I would give up, Jesus acts. The story's not over. Jesus takes action. That's why grief is so important. It leads to compassionate, nonviolent, direct action. And we get this incredible sentence. Jesus approached the tomb. I invite you to meditate on that sentence for the rest of your life. It's one of the greatest images in the entire Bible. Jesus approached the tomb. So think, for example, of the Chinese dissident student standing before the column of tanks in Tiananmen Square in 1989. That's Jesus approaching the tomb. Imagine the nonviolent Jesus walking towards the tomb of Lazarus, which, dear friends, I am trying to teach you, represents the entire human race. Imagine Gandhi's nonviolent followers marching toward the Darasan assault mines where the soldiers will club 2,000 people and strike them down. Or Dr. King and the civil rights activists walking into Birmingham, 1963, facing the troops, the dogs, and the fire hoses and not giving in. Or Daniel Berrigan and Philip Berrigan, the Catonsville Nine, walking in the draft board raids, taking out the hundreds of draft files, going outside and pouring homemade napalm on them. Or doing the same thing in the King of Prussia in 1980 when they walked into the nuclear weapons place and hammered on a nuclear nose cone. That is the nonviolent Jesus approaching the culture of death, you see. Here, dear friends, we have the God of life confronting the power of death, which is a culture. The nonviolent Jesus, the living God of life, who's issued those incredible commandments throughout history, thou shalt not kill. Beat your swords into plowshares. Love your enemies. Here, at the climax of the Gospel of John, issues three brand new commandments greater than all in history. How's that for a buildup? It's so fantastic. And dear friends, I invite you to spend the rest of your lives trying to fulfill them. The first commandment. Are you sitting down? Take away the stone. What? What are you trying to do, Martha says. Here's the greatest disciple, his best friend. And what does Martha try to do? She tries to stop Jesus. Not that, Lord. You don't understand. Jesus, look, you don't understand. There's nothing that can be done. He's been dead four days now. I tried to tell you that. Look, Jesus, Lazarus is gone. Death has won. Please don't trouble yourself, which, by the way, means... Please don't trouble us anymore. Please don't make us confront death, Jesus, even if you are the Son of God. And then finally she blurts out, 
for God's sakes, man, think of the stench. It would be hilarious if it wasn't so tragic. Friends, you can't make this up. This writing, this is why this to me is so holy. And I've said this my whole life. To me, the male disciples are like the Marx brothers or the Keystone cops. Peter, James, and John, they're just like the three stooges. Martha and Mary, exactly like Lucy and Ethel from I Love Lucy. And we're just like that too. Think about this. This is so incredible. Martha protests Jesus' commandment to take away the stone. She's trying to stop Jesus. This is the voice of total despair, the voice of no hope whatsoever, the voice which says, once you're dead, you're dead. She does what we all do. She resists the commandment to take away the stone. Why? Why does she do that? And this is what I, I, I got all of this, by the way. I'm, it's coming to me as I'm sharing this. When I was in prison for the plowshares action, because Phil and Berrigan, I used to say, why do we resist this commandment? Why does Martha try to stop Jesus from raising Lazarus? Because we do not want resurrection. We do not want life. And we don't want new life because we can't handle that much hope that much freedom, and all its social, economic, and political implications. We much prefer to live off the comforts of the culture of death, and war, and racism, and greed, and nuclear weapons, and climate change. There's nothing that can be done. Besides, if you get involved and try to do something to resist and protest, it gets really messy. Think of the stench. Take away the stone. Wow, Jesus insists. Take away the stone. And, I mean, I'm just giving you the tip of the iceberg here. You got to get the book because it's incredible stuff. All it says is the stone is taken away. And to me, this is the next sentence, the first time in the entire Gospel of John at the end where Jesus prays. He's never prayed in the entire Gospel to God. You go back and read the story. And Earlier, if you remember when I read it, Martha tries to teach Jesus how to pray. Now when I read it, I'm like, Martha, don't do it. Don't do it, Martha. Never try to teach Jesus to pray. This is my advice to you all, friends. Because you remember what Martha said to him, Oh, Lord, I'm sure that God will grant you whatever you ask for. Big mistake, Martha. Why? Because Jesus does not pray as Martha tries to get him to pray. He does not ask God for anything. Instead, he does something far more radical, which very few of us do. He looks up to the sky and says to God simply, thank you. It's shocking. What is he thanking God for? The stone's been rolled away in front of the culture of death. And he didn't do it. He got people to do it. To resist death, Jesus shows us we have to be part of a movement that rolls away the stone in front of the culture of death. And we have to do the heavy lifting. And then we have to learn from him to be people of gratitude. That's what contemplative prayers, people who are part of the global grassroots movement of nonviolence, and we live in relationship with the God of life, and we give thanks 
to God for every nonviolent action which rolls away the stone from the culture of death. Then we get the second commandment. I'm only at the second. Here it comes. Lazarus, come forth. I'm convinced the writer is saying Lazarus is the entire human race. All of humanity is buried in the tomb of the empire of death. We're all stuck in the culture of war and violence and racism and fascism and nuclear weapons, environmental destruction and death. In fact, we're all dead, all of us. And the God of life and the nonviolent Jesus approaches our tomb and calls out to each one of us, leave your tombs. You don't have to be dead. You don't have to go along with the culture of death. You're no longer dead. Come out from the power of death. Live free from the forces of death. Live in the new life of my resurrection, peace, and loving nonviolence. It's fantastic, isn't it? So Lazarus rises. And there he is at the door of the tomb. And it's not over yet. We're told in great detail. He's bound. He's tied hand and foot with burial clothes, and they're wrapped around his face. What does that mean? Think it through. He can't hear. He can't see. He can't speak. He can't use his hands to reach out and serve, nor can he walk. All those five actions symbolize discipleship to the non-binary Jesus. You can't follow him if you can't see, hear, speak, reach out, and walk. Lazarus, humanity, is still a victim of the culture of death, and still can't follow the God of life. And so we get the final and greatest third commandment. Unbind him and let him go free. One of the greatest lines of the Bible. Unbind humanity from the trappings of death and let humanity go free to live in the new life of peace and resurrection and loving nonviolence. Do they do it? We don't know. The story is left unfinished. The next sentence moves on. It's, it's just fantastic. So dear friends, Lazarus is still standing at the tomb. Humanity is still stuck in the trappings of the culture of death and violence and war, waiting for us to fulfill the commandment of Jesus to unbind humanity and let it go free. Our mission, dear friends, in other words, is to unbind humanity from the shroud of death, from the trappings of the culture of war and killing and violence, and set it free to live in peace and nonviolence. Dear friends, this story only makes sense in a social reading, maybe even a global reading, not a one-on-one -on -one me and Jesus story. This is the work of God dealing with the whole human race. The raising of Lazarus, trust me on this, symbolizes all the nonviolent struggles of liberation from oppression and death throughout history. From Francis and Claire to the abolitionists to the suffragists to Dr. King and the civil rights movement, calling forth African Americans from the tomb of racial injustice up to today, our task of unbinding one another. It's the story of Nelson Mandela and Archbishop Tutu and the resisting matter, masses of South Africa ordering the stone of apartheid to be taken away so that the South African people could walk forward free. It's the story of Dorothy Day and her Catholic worker friends refusing to take cover in fallout shelters in 1959 during the nuclear war air raid practice drills in Washington Square. It's the story of Dan and Phil Berrigan at Catonsville, story of the Plowshares Movement, and it's our story too, or it has to become our story. This is what we've been doing. This is what we're all called to do 
to fulfill the three new commandments of Jesus. Take away the stone. Call humanity out of the culture of death. Unbind humanity to live free in the new life of love and peace. The culture says, nope, there's nothing that can be done. You always have nuclear weapons. You're always going to have war and corporate greed and poverty and racism and fascism and empire and violence. Death is in control. Death does get the last word, but the voice of Jesus I can hear ringing out to us today. Take away the stone. Come out of your tombs. Unbind one another and let everyone go free. So dear friends, I encourage you to be people who have nothing to do with death, to resist the culture of death and racism and violence and war and environmental destruction, to be people who live life, the fullness of life, who seek the fullness of life for everyone and to get back to work in this terrible moment, rolling away the stone, calling humanity forth from the culture of death, unbinding one another from the trappings of the culture of death so that we can all live in the new freedom of peace, love, and nonviolence. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you'll tell other people about these peace podcasts so that more and more people will listen to them. God bless you and peace be with you.